I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. And welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. As ever, your host, Matt Dixon. And if all goes well right now, as you're listening... I'm not actually here. You see, I'm going to be in the middle of somewhere, in the middle of nowhere, on a raft, going down a river with rapids. And there's no connection. There's no connectivity. Although a personal invitation from me to you, you are welcome to come and visit us on one of our campsites. All you have to do is rent a helicopter and fly into somewhere in the middle of the Salmon River in Idaho. Yes, I am taking a lovely and some might say well-earned break with zero connectivity to the outside world. I just wouldn't even know what's happening. And so that's going to be fun. And we thought, well, why don't we lean into this? Why don't we leverage the opportunity of me being kicked out to the wilderness for a week? And because of popular requests, we can present to you today some of the best off with tips, advice, and expert thoughts on all things related to swim, bike, and run. It's all going to be anchored around the return to racing today because we have lots of people that are interested in life performance, overall energy and health, but of course our DNA is triathlon and we have a lot of triathletes that are in the midst of their season. And so our best off, we do this occasionally, but today it's all about triathlon, swim, bike, and run. Now, if you've already raced this year, I hope that you allowed yourself the joy and freedom of dusting the rust off and approaching your events with a real mindset of celebration. We've all kind of been through the ringer over the last year, I think you can agree. And if you're still building up to your first race, I think you're going to absolutely love this best of because it encapsulates some of the standalone episodes from earlier in the year. In fact, if you've got the time, I recommend that you go back and listen in full episodes 160, 161. 162, 163, 164, and 165. Yes, those episodes was our triathlon takeover series. We did a deep dive into each discipline as we headed back to the start line of our sport. And today, the meat and potatoes is actually more like dessert with some tasty, sweet highlights from each of those episodes. And so if you're feeling a bit of anxiety about a return to racing, remember that it's normal. You're rusty. It's been a while. The events feel bigger because of the gap of the last race. Acknowledge and embrace the feeling. Why? Because it is your body priming for performance. And so today, let's prime the brain. Let's do some of the best segments from our Return to Racing series. And we're going to kick it off, meat potatoes, segment one, in episode 161. In this episode, I co-hosted that show with Purple Patch coach and Swin One champion, John Stevens. Fantastic guy, excellent coach, a key part of the Purple Patch team. And undoubtedly, the swim leg of any triathlon elicits a lot of fear and anxiety for, I would say, the majority of the triathlon competitors. And so in this clip, John and I identify some of the common sources of anxiety and fear But then, most importantly, for the application side, we outlined some solutions and strategies to help alleviate some of the stress around the leg. And so, without further ado, we dig into the best of. Here we go. I give you 
John Stevens. So, so let's talk about the common sources of anxiety for athletes that you coach and support. So what are, yeah, maybe some of the challenges that amplify that as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think one of the biggest sources of fear that people have is this idea of getting in and doing a triathlon with all these other people. And that can, can range in a, in a various, in various different ways from, you know, just the idea of being kicked in the face, from being splashed, from being hit, from being drowned, you know, there's that, that congestion to, you know, all these other people are going to be faster than me. I'm just going to be in the back. That's a scary situation in itself. But, you know, I think that idea of that congestion, uh, being around those people is a scary, scary thing. And, you know, it, especially if you're not super comfortable in the water to have people splashing and splashing and thrashing around you and knowing you have no control over what they're going to do. You can only control yourself, which I think is something we can touch on later. Um, but that congestion on the course is certainly a big fear that people have. Uh, you know, to some extent, I think that may be eliminated a little bit uh, this year coming out of COVID, you know, and we were seeing that even before uh, COVID that the roll, you know, rolling starts were becoming more and more popular. The big mass starts had kind of seemed to go away, which is where you see a lot of that, that congestion and people on top of each other. Um, but there are ways to, to deal with that congestion on the course. Um, you know, I, I think another thing that scares people is the unknown of the conditions. You know, you don't know what you're going to get until mm -hmm. you get there on, on race day. Uh, and it could be windy and therefore choppy and wavy. The water could be really cold. That's some, something that scares a lot of people. You know, it's, it's someone from a warm weather climate going to do a uh, cold water race. You know, if the water temps 58, 60 degrees, that's very, very different than a, a non-wetsuit swim in the upper 70s. Um, and that could be a little bit intimidating and vice versa. Someone like myself going from Maine to a warm weather climate and then all of a sudden having to swim in this really warm weather or water rather is, uh, you know, a little bit intimidating. Um, speaking along with the conditions, you know, visibility is always a scary thing. If it's you get there race morning and it's if it's raining, visibility is decreased. It could be foggy or misty. You know, I think in that case, they would probably shorten the swim course. But even if it's shortened, it's still foggy and misty and you still might have to go swim in that. Um, and not even only visibility under the or above the water, but also under the water. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's people are so used to swimming in a pool where the black line is right there. You know, I may not like it, but it keeps me company and it makes me feel safe. You get in the open water, and you know, it could be one of those things where there's no visibility. You can't see more than three feet in front of your face. That's a scary prospect. What's down there? The creepy crawlies, as you said, mm -hmm. uh, could be lurking below. Or vice versa, I've known some people who go to a venue where the visibility is 40 feet, and it really kind of freaks them out of this idea of seeing the entire ocean world below them as they're swimming. Um, so, you know, those are the types of things that I think I find tend to be uh, the most intimidating, you know, uh, or one other thing I might add to that is an unfamiliarity with the course, not knowing what you're getting yourself into, uh, showing up never seeing it before new race maybe you've never been there maybe you had to get there late so this idea of showing up and not fully understanding what that swim course uh looks like could be a little intimidating and, and, and i will even say my first triathlon i ever did 70.3 or the first 70.3 i ever did i showed up to that swim course and it was a out and back swim and i remember looking down and thinking wow those buoys go really really far uh and you don't kind of realize that until you see it and when you lay, lay eyes on it it uh kind of opens you up a little bit oh it can i i remember going to do the alcatraz triathlon and you know bearing in mind i was a collegiate swimmer 
driving up from where I was based in Los Angeles and coming across the Bay Bridge excited. And I looked down for the first time that I'd been to San Francisco and I saw Alcatraz. It's like, that's not how far we have to swim, is it? <laughs> and it was intimidating. And, uh, and his, yeah. you could close, swim a mile, some two miles with my eyes closed. And it was intimidating. So it resonates. Well, congratulations. You've managed to succeed to get everybody's blood pressure up. And so I guess <laughs> you're the man on the hot seat. You've got to come up with solutions here. So, so John, big coach John, let's break this down. We know long-term that a part of the solution is a true commitment to swimming. But the races are coming up and it's time to get practical. And so what say you give us some solutions? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, obviously we are getting into race season and uh, it, it's upon us. So I, I think there's certainly some things that you can do to help kind of quell some of those fears, bring some of those down. And I, I think the most important one is like I said, know the course, and maybe you won't be able to get eyes on it until the day before, but there are course maps out there. I mean, geez, you can get onto Google Maps, Google Earth, and take a look at what that looks like to maybe get an idea of the scale of it. Um, but study that course map, see where those buoys are. Are, are they going to be on your right? Are they going to be on your left? Uh, which way are you going to have to turn to go around these buoys? Understand uh, how you're going to navigate that course. What is that going to look like? Um, think about those potential obstacles I mentioned with, uh, with conditions. What are you going to do if you breathe to the left and the sun is rising on your left and the sun is in your eyes the whole time? What are you going to do if the wind is up and it's choppy? How are you going to handle that? So I think what you need to start doing is understanding that course. What are the possibilities? Um, and then looking to familiarize yourself with what you're going to do in those situations. Um, you know, and honestly, I think the biggest thing that is helpful with all of those fears and, and to help anxiety for swimming and, and racing across the board um, is a warm up. If you get there on race morning and that you're all jittery and you're all nervous, getting in into the water, going for a run on the course a little bit, but getting in there with that warm up and going in there with a warm up plan. Just don't show up and think in your mind, I'm going to warm up when I get there. Know what your warm up is going to be. Um, and, you know, along with that, have a backup plan because your warm up plan may not be allowed when you show up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, I, I, I want to say that you, I'm going to add on a couple of things there, which is uh, the first with warm up, you said you show up and, and you're jittery. That's normal. That's your body priming it for itself. But, but obviously, the one thing is get there with plenty of time. So give yourself, there's nothing worse than being really rushed and, and scattered. And I think that that warm-up, you know, people say it's always better once the gun goes off. Well, it's actually always better once you start moving. And so having a warm-up, that's really important. And you're priming the body to do what it's supposed to do. Now, I want to ask you a follow-up, though. You, you say plan B. So we have a very simple and repeatable swim warm-up and we're going to add that to the show notes so you can head there and have a look at the type of warm-up that we prescribe to the purple patch athletes to say hey this is it very easy to scale to adjust a little bit but you talk about plan b what, what do you mean by that to be more specific well it, with that what i mean is say, say your plan a is you show up and you're going to do that very specific swim uh warm-up but Lo and behold, race morning, they've closed the course to warm-ups. Now you can't get in and warm up. What are you going to do? Um, you know, I, I, we 
I have a lot of my athletes that will bring their swim bands along as a warm up. But with that, they've been doing swim bands all along. You know, mm-hmm. a, a lot of athletes will will think, well, you know, I I read on some magazine article that you should do swim bands to warm up for your race. So they, they don't use them. They unwrap them from the package on race morning. They hook them up and they start wailing away on these swim bands, having never done them before. And then halfway through the swim, shoulders are completely dead. You know, <laughs> so that's something you want to practice ahead of time. But have those contingencies. Okay, I can't swim. I can. I can run. I can't get in the water. I can use the swim bands. Um, having those uh, in your back pocket is one going to. It's going to make you feel better knowing that you have an answer should something come up. Uh, but it's also going to be practical in the sense that you're going to be ready to go. You, you mentioned the run there. That's also a, a, a good tactic to deploy even before the swim is just to get the core temperature up. And even sometimes if it's a very chilly morning, going for a very easy jog to get your core temperature up, even in your wetsuit, so that you can trap that heat is, is sometimes a, a really helpful thing for an athlete. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll tack on to that a little bit too more because you did mention about being cold and getting in is is the timing of your warm up when you're doing it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you're somebody that's racing Oceanside or 70.3 Maine, let's say, and water temp is in the low 60s, high 50s, you're not going to want to get in there with your wetsuit 30, 45 minutes or maybe an hour ahead of your swim and then just be standing around soaking wet in a wet wetsuit you're going to get cold really quick and that's going to affect your performance on the swim and probably for the rest of the race. So I think timing of that is also uh, critical. I mean, you don't want to miss your race, but you don't want to be standing around uh, getting cold. Uh, Absolutely. And in fact, I will go one more. I'm going to see your queen and, uh, and go up on that. The, there are water temperatures and, and everyone has their own individual temperature. I'm sure yours is incredibly low because you're a hard, tough bastard from Maine. But um and I'm just a soft English guy, so so mine's probably a little higher, especially as now I live in California. But um there's a there's a there's a water temperature where even a swim warm-up might not be advisable, where it's just very, very hard to even get core temperature up. And in that situation I'd be interested in what you think of this, but but obviously getting the body primed, doing a, a, a run or an easy jog, doing some arm circles or, or swim bands, et cetera. And then what I tend to have athletes do is if it's very cold water, get in, become familiar with that water up to waist or sort of thigh, maybe dunk your head a couple of times just before swim start to get over any of the, oh, <gasps> moment the ice cream headache moment that that and then calmly get in right before swim start and sometimes that's what you have to do anyway because of the race logistics but in cold water in temperatures that tends to be sometimes a a a better solution would you agree with that oh absolutely i mean there's certainly a temperature where you're you're not going to want to get in and do much more than what you just said um just because it's going to be too cold or you know it's one of those situations where like like you said overcome the cold headache that's one of those things with really cold water where there's that shock to your system and shock and you can't you literally can't put your face in the water so if you splash splash some water on your face a little bit in those types of situations really helps but i think understanding your body understanding what you're comfortable with and also having a really good understanding of what the water temp is going to be at that race location and what that means you know i i think it's really hard for a lot of people to understand what 56 degrees Fahrenheit means as far as a, you know, a, a, a water temp. Um, so understand what it's going to be and what 
what that means, and then how how are you going to react to that type of water? Exactly. Uh, uh, by the way, I'll tell people it means it's freaking cold. By the way, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I get your point. I do want to come up to one thing that you said earlier, which is to study the course as well. One other tip that I have: when you are swimming, you're 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 not standing up with perspective. You're right down there like a like an alligator or a crocodile. Your eyes are just above the surface, and that makes it even more challenging to navigate. And we know that one of the key components to success is swimming in as straight a line as possible. So a thing that you can do after you've studied the course map, but you actually show up to the race venue, hopefully the day before, is to have a look at the layout of the course and have a look at the landscape around you. And are you in a lake setting where there's a mountain or a hill behind? And is there a rather large tree that is right in line with the swim buoy line? And that can be a navigation tool. People always get obsessed with, with just the buoys and swimming buoy to buoy. But ultimately, you can use the buoy and the landscape behind it. You can also look laterally look to your left, look to your right and have at least a compass to follow of, okay, it's about this far out from the, from the coastline or whatever it might be. And in really foggy conditions, you even have the buoy behind you as well. So there is a little bit of 360 degree sighting from a skill acquisition that can really help people. Yeah. I'm really glad you said that about, you know, finding those landmarks on the course, because that's something that one, familiarizes you, lets you know where you are within the swim. Uh, let's say, you know, okay, I know when I get to that, those two big pine trees, I'm getting close to that turn buoy. But also, like you said, if the conditions come up in such that you can't see the buoy in front of you, the sun is directly in front of your face, you have these lateral landmarks to, to kind of gauge where you are and what you're doing. And, and trust me, that is much more efficient going off of those than uh, going off of your fellow swimmers because they can't, if you can't see, they can't see. That That's exactly it. And the vast majority of people that are swimming in your vicinity, most of them have about the same, probably maybe not level of anxiety, but certainly the same level of skill acquisition as you. And so I probably wouldn't put my trust in myself if I was really anxious and not very skilled at sighting. And so don't put it in in the trust of your competitors. Uh, so it, th this is great. We, we sort of focused on race day, you know, getting ready for the race, uh, sighting, course preparation, etc. What, what about the listener that is still several weeks out? So they've got a month, they've got six weeks, they've got 10 weeks before their race. Are there, what can they do to help prepare themselves as they ramp up towards the race to help them with open water. Yeah. If, if you're four, eight, <clears throat> excuse me, 10 weeks out from a race, this is the time to start acquiring those open water specific skills that we talked about earlier. And the great thing about this is you don't need the open water to do it. It's a little bit easier, but you can do these things in the pool and, and, and focus on the things that are going to make you that you that you're anxious about. So if you're anxious about swimming in a congested group of people, you know, splashing and thrashing, and maybe you can't get a full breath all the time, grab a few friends if you can and do what we call close contact swimming. Um, now, again, this may be limited by what you're, what is allowed in your pool. I know my pool only has one person per lane right now. Uh, but when we talk about close contact swimming, get a couple of friends, line up in the lane, three abreast, all of you swim at the same time. There's going to be contact. 
You're going to be bumping into each other, but get familiar with that feeling and then figure out how are you going to handle that? How are you going to react to that? Um, you know, a, a other kind of open water specific skills. And I think the most important open water specific skill is sighting. And this is the time of, you know, leading up to a race where you want to start integrating that sighting uh, into your workouts. And if you're doing it at the pool, set up a kickboard at the end of the lane, set up a water bottle at the end of the lane and practice, not just lifting your head and integrating that sighting movement into your stroke, but also actually seeing what you're looking at. Um, and, and focusing in on that on the end of the on end of the lane. So mix it into a race specific type of set, mix it into some easier swimming just to get the feeling, uh, but start adding in that sighting of two, three, four times per, per lap per 25. Yeah. And Double that if you're in a 50 meter pool. And, and that's, there's some conditioning to that as well. If you think about that, we, you just suggested three to four times per 25, and there are a lot of 25s in a uh, the length of a triathlon <laughs> swim. So you, you are actually lifting your head. You want to integrate it into the breathing rhythm. But there's a conditioning side of that. And, and I think that what you mentioned there, which is don't just lift the head quickly, actually see what you're um, like, take the snapshot. The eye is this amazing thing. It will take a really clear picture ahead of it. Make sure you see where you're going. And if you can swim in a straight line, you have a much greater chance of meeting your trained potential with race day performance. And there are many, many people that improve their best paced per hundred, and yet they end up swimming to Egypt and uh and end up not seeing any gain so that's important what what else from a practical standpoint you know excuse me also from a practical standpoint too is i would say uh you know one of the things we talked about is what are you going to do if conditions uh, don't allow you to breathe to a certain side uh sun wind whatever it may be let's say you're a, a swimmer who only breathes to the left that could limit you come race day so this is the time where we want to start uh, learning to breathe to both sides of the body. And, and when I say that, I don't mean bilateral breathing in the traditional sense. When we as swimmers, you know, growing up, whenever we were told bilateral breathe, that meant you're breathing every third stroke, every fifth stroke, mm -hmm. maybe every seventh, if there's some sort of punishment involved in that long swim. Um, but breathing every three strokes, sure, you're looking to both sides, but what you're doing is you're, you're starving your body of oxygen. Um, especially if you're an adult onset swimmer, slower stroke rate, that's a lot of time in between breaths. Mm -hmm. So what you wanna be able to do is be comfortable only breathing to the left side, but you also wanna be comfortable only breathing to the right side. Because if the sun is to your left, bilateral breathing every three is only gonna help you half the time. So get comfortable breathing to both sides. And, and people will always have one that they fall towards their favorite but they must have the skill to be able to do both sides. And that little last one minute there, when you talked about bilateral breathing, that, that was absolutely terrific. It's, you know, let's crush the myth right now. You do not, you should not bilaterally breathe. In other words, commit to a pattern of every third stroke. But as you say, you should be able to breathe to both sides. And that's a stark difference there. So I think this Thank you, that's absolutely super. All right, guys, well, that was fantastic. Thank you very much for John, and we get to march on, hold hand in hand, and we head to segment two of our best of. 
And it's never a dull moment when Ivan O'Gorman and Chris Soden of IOG Bike Fit and Consulting pay a visit to the Purple Patch podcast. And in episode number 163, we spent an hour of power with these two. These guys are the experts on all things related to bike performance, including optimum fitting, posture, equipment, even pacing strategies. And their approach to consulting is driven by decades of experience of cycling and triathlon royalty. And in this clip, we revisit aero. Is aero really everything in triathlon? Let's find out what the guys at IOG had to say. Oh, and if you did watch the Olympics, yeah, there were some medalists that were IOG clients. That's the standard we're talking about, guys. I give you Ivan and Chris, entertaining but highly educational. I'm going to start with personally one of my least favorite sayings, but uh, here we go. I'm going to start with a common saying, and it's often applied to bike fit. You see it on T-shirts, you see it on hashtags in social media. Aero is everything. And so in the world of bike fitting, do you believe that to be the case? For a small, I'll jump in here. So thanks, Matt. Um, I think for a small percentage of, of the audience, it will be, you know, it's the icing on the cake. But what is the cake? And that's power. Like you've got to generate great power. You've got to be able to sustain the position. You've got to have a level of comfort. And you've got to be able to run off it. So I suppose if we ignore <laughs> those nuggets, then aero is everything. But we can't just ignore those nuggets. And I know you and you and I and Chris, we can sound like broken records when it comes to the fundamentals and the basics, because everyone wants to just get into, you know, the more sexier topics of uh, aero and new equipment, emerging technologies, and does spending a large amount of money guarantee me speed. So, you know, that it's 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 uh it's realistic that your audience are kind of large can be largely focused on aero because a lot of money is spent in that area to not alone develop and, and improve product but also to tell the story so it's what we get bombarded with you know so aero is very very important to experienced athletes who have enjoyed the early increases in their performance curve those early increases where they went from a road bike to an air to a tri bike or an aero bike to where you know they're chopping half an hour off their 70.3 time collectively um and so on and then those gains begin to become a little bit harder and it's at that point where they have to reevaluate what they were doing as hobbyists and and kind of turn their mind to nowhere highly competitive kind of triathletes so i think that kind of happens through a through an athlete's kind of journey and um you don't put the arrow is everything in front of the other portion of the journey and i will reiterate that we are not purely focusing on the bike we also try to evaluate and consider like how well athletes will run off the bike because I've never enjoyed an email where somebody might say, you know, I went 16 minutes quicker on the bike, but I ran, you know, 30 minutes slower on the marathon. It's like, you know, there's there's no fun in that for anybody. So, um, so aero in this case is not everything. But if you get to the point where you're a Sam Appleton or you're somebody who's performing at the very pointy end, or indeed, Matt, if you're if you're sore because you miss Kona by two minutes or something like that. 
maybe it is time to focus really in on on aerodynamics on the bike and could that have contributed to a better split without um impacting your run and would that have gotten you your corner qualification so that'll kind of give you a broad stroke of where i am on aero is everything and it it it, it sparked a, an interesting thing for for me knowing that you guys you guys do i know this isn't about your services but i'm genuinely interested here we talked about the fundamentals the building blocks so making sure you can generate power making sure that you're in a sustainable position that's comfortable and then the refining components critical finding components of the the higher end athlete which is aerodynamics and choices of equipment etc you guys do services in person boulder denver and of course san francisco at the purple patch center now you also do online consultations. I think you call them OCAs. Can, can you just spend a, a couple of minutes? Is, is it possible? Obviously, everything's possible in person. On the online components, are you able to effectively address the building block fundamental stuff as well as the aero stuff and vice versa? Yeah, that's a it's a great question, Matt. And I think um, Ivan and I, when we first started on this journey of doing our online consult and kind of positional audits, we would have we would have maybe asked the same question. Uh, I think what's been fascinating and fun and and very rewarding is how much impact we have been able to make in those spaces through an online consult where we can grab some video from an athlete, um, dissect that video, go through it with them, have discussions with the athlete about what they're experiencing, what we see. Um, in a lot of ways, I think we've been overwhelmed at, uh, at the amount of, of impact that we can make. And I think what's struck me in particular is how you can still be a part of an athlete's journey, if it is, even if uh, remotely, to start. Um, we've had a lot of those where clients have also then traveled out to IOG, to San Francisco, um, to also have those one-on-one -on -one encounters. But I think by and large, we can assess a lot of those things. We can see some of the elements that we might address if that athlete is in the studio with us. And that's uh, that's been super rewarding, as I said before. Well, well let, me, let me jump in as an interim moderator, if you're okay with this, Matt. So client sends you a video, Chris. What's the, what's the kind of first things you're looking for? Uh, side, we're talking about, for those of you at home, we're talking about a side profile video. Someone's on their Wahoo. They're just like in a piece of work. What, what are some of the basics you're looking at and how do they pertain to the fundamentals? Yeah, I'd say the first thing we're assessing is just kind of maybe where their saddle height is. Where are they sitting on the saddle? How are they positioned on the bike? Um, how is their upper body structured? It's, it's amazing how I, I think just being able to see kind of big, huge gains, saddle heights that are four centimeters too high, four centimeters too low. Um, but we're just doing an overall assessment of the contact points, how your athlete engages with the bike, how they look on the bike, connecting that with the feedback that you've gotten from our, our rider history form that they fill out. Um, so that's ultimately where we start. And, and that that's, uh, sorry to dump in Ivan, but that that's, I think something that's really interesting there as well you sort of said how the how the athlete interacts with the bike and a lot of people think of fitting as just getting the points in space so seat height length between bars and uh, and seat etc cetera, etc cetera. but it, there's also this education that comes with it and i would imagine that over video you can really go through an edu educational process of holding posture making sure that the 
angle of the hip departure, et cetera, is, is really aligned. And I guess that comes to, to life in that, those sort of sessions. Yeah. Yeah. And, and sometimes even, even lower hanging fruit than that. Like I don't, I don't, nobody ever explained to me what a tri saddle does, why a triathlon saddle is important for this position. Um, I just was told to go buy a comfortable saddle and I'm sitting on it in a different way and it's not comfortable. So I, I think as much as uh, the more we do this, the more we learn that it's a message that is worth repeating and worth doing. And there's a, a growing huge market out there that, that wants that information and, and walks away, I think, feeling very good about the interaction. What, what um, so that, that's interesting. Let me, let me ask you this, because we, we want to focus on racing today. I wanted to touch off on those because really interesting, that side of things, but, um, how close to races or events do you feel? And I know this is a generalization, so, you know, shoot me if you need to, but how, how close to events do you feel athletes can go before they make changes to their fit, to their equipment? Um, I'll jump in here and I'll say that I think it depends, Matt, on how long they've been riding the actual position. What's the kind of muscle memory associated and, and where has their training been? Because like, you know, sometimes we have that dilemma where a person will come to us in the studio and, um, you know, they're kind of up against a race within the final couple of weeks. And by and large, there's probably more risk with making changes than actually letting them get through that race and then getting back to the drawing board. But if somebody came to us two weeks before a race and said, well, I've just kind of gotten this bike or I've been doing training on another bike, and now I'm kind of dusting this off and I'm pulling it out for the first race, then like I think you can make some pretty, you know, reasonably sized changes, particularly when they're low risk, uh, that close to a race. And like low risk changes are more like if somebody was sitting very low and they're complaining about not like their quads being overworked and feeling a little bit of like patella tension and so on, it's like, that's a kind of a low hanging fruit that they need more knee extension. Their quads will thank them. It's not like you're going to raise that satellite to where, um, you know, your hamstrings are going to light up or you're going to aggravate a lower back. So there's certain changes that you can make before a race. And I think they're low risk. Um, if you recall when we were working with Sam on the lead up to his great race in Daytona, um, we did a, an aerodynamic kind of evaluation and also, um, just another quick little kind of positional review. And that was a classic case where uh, we had even some good computational fluid dynamic data that would, would say there was a little bit of achievements in CDA to be found. But I clearly said to him, Sam, you've got too much to lose by changing this three weeks out, you know, and, and, and look at how, um, I guess, sensitive riders are to change and some riders are more sensitive to change than others. So we just tried to evaluate that. Um, but let me let me think back out of that for a second. And let's just say if uh, I remember somebody giving some good advice when this pandemic hit in, saying it was a great time to work on fundamentals off the bike. Like now that you're not racing, evaluate your position, evaluate your run form, evaluate your swim. And for those that didn't take pieces of advice like that and now are one month out from a race, 
Um, look, the fundamentals won't change. Are you enjoying your position? How comfortable are the contact points? Are you, are, is your kind of performance where it needs to be in relation to like, are you struggling to hit numbers? Are you struggling to run well off the bike? Uh, where is it? And then let's start addressing that. Now that's very different for people, but I, for different athletes across the board. But what I would say, and there's no getting away from the fundamentals. The saddle is critical. It's going to set up good posture. That posture is going to create great power. And if you don't get that right, you're already on a major slippery slope to having uh, a kind of a good performance. After that, if your feet are comfortable and if the front end is well set up for where your time in the saddle has been, for the type of riding you're trying to do, and then like they're the fundamentals. And that's the low hanging fruit that Chris looks for in the OCAs. And uh, then biomechanically sound means like for your skeletal kind of size for some of the, um, you know, for some of your proportions, are these contact points in the right place for that? So there's a kind of a postural element, there's a biomechanical element, and then there's obviously, is it serving you in training and racing? So they're the fundamentals. They're never going to change no matter what different questions we ask around them. Uh, they're not going to change. And I would say, look, to be safe, anything closer to two weeks to a race is probably too much of a risk. But anything from two weeks back from a race, there's definitely, there's just, there could be low hanging fruit there that would be low risk and you could make a change and it could make a big improvement to your, your kind of uh, overall performance. Super stuff. Thank you so much, Ivan. Chris, great stuff as usual. We get to march on. We move to episode 164 of the Purple Patch podcast for segment three. And this continues to be one of our most popular episodes. It was entitled The Triathlete's Guide to Running Success. You see, fitness is seldom a prohibitor of performance on the run leg of a triathlon. So why does it cause so much frustration? There are plenty of reasons that your run performance can be derailed. And in this episode, I unpack each one of those reasons. And with that groundwork of understanding, I then lay out the steps to your own personal run greatness. And spoiler alert, it doesn't involve going out and buying a brand new pair of carbon footplated shoes. And so you can rid that from your mind. I hope you enjoy. And so without further ado, my code for your run performance, get your notebook out. And you know the good news? Nearly all of your answers to success are built off of simply avoiding the mistakes or the causes that lead to the dismantling of your performance potential. A great run performance isn't mythical. It doesn't require magic. There isn't some special secret source that drives you into the stratosphere. In fact, to borrow a purple patch saying, it's really all about nailing the basics. Yes, you've got to apply some grit and effort in the right places at the right time. And it's setting yourself up by nailing the elements that can ultimately interfere earlier in race performance, way before the run even commences. And so let's get dialed in with a five-point guide. Number one, here we go. And this one is the important one. Arrive to your race primed. Oh, that's a nice word, isn't it? It really is. Arrive 
primed. You see, triathlons are endurance events. They require cardiovascular conditioning and great muscular endurance. And hard work is essential. It requires commitment. There is nothing about this journey to racing that's easy. And in fact, I would say that's the thing that enables great personal reward and satisfaction. It can be so great. But this doesn't mean the requisite of hard work. It doesn't mean that more is always better, especially if that more means that you arrive depleted emotionally and physically. And this becomes really important because you guys, my listeners, the time-starved amateurs, are juggling so many stresses in life, all at the same time trying to integrate training into that very busy life. And your primary weapon to set up global performance, but also great running, is to arrive at your race really fit, so consistency allows that, but also fresh. And so as you go into your final weeks leading up to race week, I would heavily encourage you to avoid the temptation to add, to try and seek an edge, to do more. Instead, just maintain consistency. In fact, fly just by a hair's breadth under the radar. Dance on the side of caution and bank your physical and your mental resources because you bring those resources to the big day itself. And the good news on this is really that one of the bright spots, there have been some bright spots in the last year, is the fact that racing itself can be depleting. So the fact that we've had a year or so with really limited to no racing, that's going to help a whole bunch of folk, and hopefully you, pop off some incredible performances. Get excited because we are going to see some magic this year. And so before you go and race, don't block your body's chance to shine. Got it? Good. That's number one. That's the first thing you can do for your run. And with that in mind, let's continue. The second thing, dial in your equipment. Now, you might have listened to the team from IOG last week, but ensuring a proper bike setup not only optimizes bike speed, it also sets up the opportunity for a great run because postural stress on the bike is an absolute assassin of run performance. And so I really encourage you, dial in the fit and get as comfortable as you possibly can, and then get aero. A similar sentiment applies to your running shoes, which is your primary equipment for this discipline. Comfortable, familiar, and suitable for you. If you are light and fleet-footed, and then you might stray towards a slightly lighter shoe. But the vast majority, that double underlined, the vast majority of amateur triathletes, yes, the vast majority, get it in there, benefit from a familiar and comfortable shoe that mitigates, doesn't amplify, mitigates mechanical fatigue. 
so many of the modern shoes that are padded are also light. And so I encourage you, choose your shoes with pragmatism. And before you ask, with nothing against the shoes, but the vast majority of athletes are not best suited to the super duper carbon plated magic shoes, especially those ones with a very narrow and tall heel box. Yes, I'm looking at you, Nike. Folks, you might as well wear stilettos. They're light, but I tell you what, you're going to begin to fall off them as soon as you're midway on your long distance triathlon run. All right, so we've dialed in, we've got primed, we've got great equipment. Now, number three, know your fuel plan, but then apply it with flexibility. Hmm, let's dig in. Your bike fuel and hydration plan sets up run performance. So nail it. But, and there's a big, big but, I want this to marinate, pardon the pun, realize this, life is not a spreadsheet. And so when you are applying your plan on race day, you must, 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 must be pragmatic and responsive. What do I mean by that? Well, you would have probably thought through how many ounces or milliliters you're going to drink every hour on the bike and how many grams of carbohydrate you're going to aim to consume and where they're going to come from. But this may almost should evolve over the course of your bike ride and into the run, depending on how the body is responding. Look, two examples. If you're losing focus, dropping mood, feeling low energy, you need to get more energy in, no matter what the plan says. Tip it in, folks. On the flip side, if you're burping, feeling bloated, tummy rumbling, don't keep tipping the energy in. You need to stay hydrated, but don't just dump calories on top of a stomach that is full of undigested calories. When you apply your fueling plan over the course of the bike and onto the run, you have to remain aware, responsive, and pragmatic. And throughout the bike, if you do this, it can pave the way for you to arrive at the run with good energy, topped up blood volume, in other words, not too dehydrated, and a clear stomach so that you are able to fuel your way through the run as well. Oh, and if you want one more tip, you need to keep in your back pocket, proverbially, not literally, but you need to keep in your back pocket the get out of jail free card. What is it? What is the get out of jail free card on the run? Well, if it all, pardon the pun again, turns to custard, literally, your stomach turns to custard, what do you do? You've got your super duper special gels. You've got your special hydration. You've got your chews that you really like. They might not be appropriate. But you know what is if your stomach turns to custard? If you just can't face anything every time, almost every athlete, Coke and water. I'll say it again. Coke and water. Go on it. 
I don't care that you don't drink Coke in your normal life. I'm not interested if you don't take caffeine in life. Coke and water every time. The triathlete's elixir. All right, guys, three in, two to go. Here's perhaps my most important one. Number four, a smart approach to the run for most of you listening. So this doesn't apply to everyone listening, but it does to most of you. Here we go. Are you ready? I'm going to hit you with something. And you might not like the sound of it, but for more than half of you, it is going to be the catalyst for your best performance on the run. I want you to embrace walking. I said it, walking. Not the whole time, but strategic walking. I want you to remember this mantra. Run as well as you can. So this means great posture, great form, great foot speed. And then hold that running as long as you can. In other words, run with that form until the form begins to really decline. And then string it together as often as you can. In other words, string together that great running with strategic walk breaks so that you can reset mentally and physically and then return to great running. Run as well as you can, as long as you can, as often as you can. And when you string that together across the whole discipline, it adds up to a great result in your running. Now let's compare what I just said with the norm. You head into the run with great ambition. I am going to tough this one out. You start to fall into decline until you're just simply unable to run well. And then you spend the rest of that discipline, the run leg, mixing it up between some form of despairing walking and some awful running. I don't want this for you. Instead, I want you to run great the whole time. Whatever, quote, great is for you. But to do this over the course of a 10K or a 21K or a 42K, for the vast majority, it's going to be pragmatic and sensible for you to integrate short resets with power walking, not just wandering around with the shopping, but power walking so that you can reduce load, reset, and go again. And you want to start these walk breaks before you are forced to. So it's not about running until you're into decline and then trying to dig your way out of it. It's actually strategically doing it early so that when it comes to the money, the business end, you're still able to run well. It takes courage and confidence and belief in yourself to do this. But the question is, how do I do it? And I think there are two main elements to it. Because what strategic walking is, in my mind, is not simply going, okay, great. I am going to run five minutes, walk one minute, and repeat. And no matter what happens, that's what I'm going to do. Fair enough, but that's ultimately limiting. Instead, I would prefer you to establish a pattern 
a little bit like your fueling plan, but then manage it. And let me just give you a case study. Imagine that you are typically running at your goal pace. Let's not worry about the duration of the race, but imagine that you're running at nine minute miles. Great. And so you're going to begin your run portion with a little bit of a plan. I'm going to run nine minutes, so the whole mile, and then I'm going to walk 30 to 40 seconds. So in other words, I'm going to walk every aid station for 30 to 40 seconds where I can do something productive, which is to fuel and hydrate. Great. Well, you might do that for a few miles, but if you then begin to really fatigue, you might be like, hang on, this isn't working. I can't hold good form. Remember, run as well as you can for as long as you can. I can't do that for nine minutes now. So now I need to adjust. My legs are dropping off. So instead, I'm going to go to four-minute segments. And I'm going to run four minutes with a 20 to 25-second little reset. I'm still going to make sure that I time it, no matter where I'm at on my watch, to walk the aid station so that I can fuel and hydrate. But I'm going to try and limit the walking to a little bit shorter, but I'm going to do it more frequently. And then you go to that and you're retaining it. But now you're in the middle back end of the race and things start to fatigue again. Look, it's a long race after all. You've got to stay tough. You've got to stay on task. So now you might go to two minutes of running, but that running is done well. And you're going to interject really frequent 15 second walk breaks. Keep going. Keep going, keep going. And yes, when you hit the aid station, you might lengthen it. You do something productive. You fuel and hydrate. You reset the mind and you go again. What you're doing in this scenario is managing. And you're remaining focused on the things that you can control and ultimately just resetting as needed. Good. That's sort of part one. That sounds really simple. But there's one more important layer as well. And this is critical terrain. Now what you must do is have a little fluid relationship with the stopwatch because you must now layer those walk breaks in a really sensible and smart way around some simple rules. You don't walk downhill. Instead, you aim to layer the walk breaks either uphill, ideally, and if not, on the flats. The question is why? Well, it's really simple. You're looking to get from A to the finish line, B, as fast as you possibly can. And the penalty, the speed penalty of walking downhill relative to running downhill is massive. It's seismic. You don't want to run downhill when you've got gravity in your favor. Conversely, the speed penalty for walking uphills compared to chugging uphill against gravity is minimal. And so pragmatism rules. Here's the whole thing that this highlights. Everything we've talked about so far, your equipment choices, and then the application of your fueling and hydration plan and your management of the run via smart integrated walk breaks it highlights a need for you to not wander mentally. You must be present. And that's a huge part of the challenge of this sport, is remaining engaged with the project, with yourself, how you're doing. 
and solving the problems that can and will arrive. You see, excellence comes out of a commitment to yourself, responding to what's happening and staying on, oh, what's the phrase? Staying on, that's right, the process, not the outcome. Okay, so we're almost there. We have one more to go, folks. The final one, number five. This is how you're going to nail your run performance. It is what you bring to the party. And that is a single word. That is a commitment. You see, you need to know that if you are having a great race, the run is going to get tough. You should realize that the run portion is also the place in which you're going to have a whole bunch of time to think. Too much time alone is sometimes not a good thing. And you will be aiming to nail a run performance while dealing with an accumulation of fatigue and a drop in substrates or energy. You will likely encounter low moods, low energy, and that can cause a spiral. And all of this is completely normal. What is going to make an exceptional run performance for you, typically leading, by the way, to a great overall race performance, is an undying commitment to stay on mission. Okay, what's the mission? Well, it's really simple. When the gun goes off at the start of the race, your job is to get from the start line to the finish line as fast as you can, no matter what. So when you're on the run, how the swim portion went becomes irrelevant and how the bike portion went becomes irrelevant what you can control now. Gasp, we are almost there. One more segment to go. Segment number four, we go to episode 165, in which we tie it all together. This was titled Nailing Your Race Day Performance. And let me tell you, a successful return to racing is anchored around a simple mindset. Number one, this won't define me. Number two, there is nothing to lose. Number three, nail the basics. And number four, celebrate the return. It's back. Enjoy it. Let me explain a little more. I hope you enjoy this section because this is all about getting the mindset right for your races in triathlon. Enjoy. For you to physically perform, you have to make sure that the controller, your mind, is in the right place. Because the driver behind your physical conditioning and performance is always your mind. So let's establish the right framework. Now, I could wrap this up into a lovely, cute one-liner. It might be something like, this race doesn't define you. You have nothing to lose. Nail the basics. Celebrate the return. And that would be super. In fact, why don't you write that on your arm in marker pen? It doesn't define me. Nothing to lose. Nail the basics. Celebrate the return. Let that be your driver. But you guys, needy listeners that you are, you want more than that, don't you? Luckily, 
I'm here. And so here is my list on framing of your mindset for the initial race. Now, this might be your first race ever, or it is your initial race on your return after a long layoff, as many of us face ourselves. So let's go big picture. Let's go through some of these. So number one, this doesn't define you. I invite you, as you go into your first race, to remove the pressure. You shouldn't build this initial race into some pass-fail event. That's what Heather was doing originally. Oh my goodness me, what happens if? It's been so long. Is this all going to be for nothing? Realize this and embrace this. Stamp it on your heart. Your first race of any season of your career on your return, it doesn't define you. It doesn't define you as a success as an athlete or the value of your hard work that you have been doing over the layoff. And so let's station that in your mind, number one. Number two, I also invite you to let gratitude carry you through the day. You see, if you're getting right now over the coming weeks or months, if you're going to get to step onto the race course, why don't we spend a little moment now and put that into the context of the state of the world globally? Yeah, you're pretty lucky. You're pretty lucky. We all benefit from the fact that we get to step on the race course. We get to go and play, challenge ourselves, compete. What a freaking gift. This thing is not over in many parts of the world. It is a serious thing that is happening in the world. And so I would invite you to keep that in context and let that lift you. Be thankful, a bit of gratitude, and ensure that you ensure that you have a celebratory note of mind and a big smile from inside on your heart. It's been a while. <sighs> I'm going to go and commit to have fun. So straight away, we've just removed the shackle of expectations and we've put it in the context. We get to play and have fun. And guess what? When you have fun, good things tend to happen. Good. All right. So what should you expect of yourself? Well, you should expect nothing. You should have no expectations. And that is very, very different than low expectations. Low expectations is a belief that you are not going to do well. That is not what I mean here. I'm just going in curious. I just want you to go into your first race with an inquisitive mind and a very simple commitment. And that is you're going to commit to try your very best in all of the things that you can control throughout the race, period, nothing else. And finally, let's put this race in context of your entire year of performance. This first race back is going to act as your platform to build from. You're going to likely have in this first race some real bright spots. You also probably have areas of the race in which you're going to want to grow from. You're going to want to improve. But just seek the lessons from your first race. And once you have that, 
you really are liberated and free to just go and give it a crack. Now, with those four main components of your mindset, I still think it's important to realize and, and acknowledge that it's very, very normal for you to carry a little anxiety into race number one, even fear. You see, when you return to racing, the truth is that you are rusty. It's been a while. And this event is going to naturally feel bigger because of that time since your last race. And I would encourage you to actually acknowledge that feeling, embrace it. And the reason for this is because those feelings are really, really normal. In part, it's your body priming itself for the event. But also, it's the fact that your brain simply cannot answer the question, which is, am I ready to have a breakout performance? You don't really know that because racing, the act of racing, is not currently familiar to you. And when you are familiar, you become confident. And so with the lack of familiarity, there's a bit of anxiety there. The feelings of anxiety are normal. And so there's absolutely no need to try and suppress those feelings or pretend that they're not real. But what you have control over is deciding how you interact with those feelings, how you respond to those feelings. And it doesn't take much for you to actually shift the relationship with the natural anxiety. All you need to do is stop, pause, and reflect. All right, I'm worried. I'm anxious. But what can I control? Well, I tell you what you can control. You can control your actions. You can control your commitment and where you decide to place your focus. And so if I go into this race with no expectations and I channel all of my focus on the things that I actually can control and a simple commitment to try my best in those areas I can control, no matter what happens throughout the race, and then whatever happens, whatever my body gives me, good, bad, or ugly, I can be really satisfied with my effort on the day and I am going to have something to build from. You see, that is what we mean when we say, when you get all that right, you have freedom to fail. And so that's our mindset. That's how I want you to carry into this first race. Alrighty, troops, thanks so much for listening. We appreciate the support. I encourage you to get out there and celebrate. I know that many of the Purple Patch athletes have, and I tell you what, it's shown in some tremendous results. We are having our banner year. I hope that everyone's thriving coming out of the mess of the last year, but I'll tell you this, this is, by all definition, all measurement, the best year that Purple Patch has ever had. So reach out to us. If you're interested, purplepatchfitness.com, or you can email us, and we're happy to have a chat, info at purplepatchfitness.com. You know what else is special? Our athletes are hearing things like, tell Matt we love the podcast out on the race course, and that is really, really nice to see. So keep them coming. Better yet, tell me what you think and what you would like to hear. I've got one request as I'm out there rafting away being very, very brave. I would love you to do one thing if you're enjoying the show. Drop us a note or a question. Head to the podcast page, purplepatchfitness.com forward slash podcast, and there's a form there that you can fill out. 
These are my questions. This is what I'd love you to talk about. These are the guests that I'd love to have on because you know what? We are a blank canvas and we are here to educate and inspire and hopefully help you on your journey. What's coming up? We've got a lot of really good, fun, powerful conversations coming up and I'm going to hold most in the back, but I do want to give you a little sneak peek because a couple of weeks ago, we had Mr. Tim Deer, and you might have listened to Tim Deer a couple of years ago. That was the crazy guy that did really well at that mad race, Badwater 135. Well, guess what? Two years older, 56 years of age now, Tim went back and did Badwater again, and he did even better, four hours better. The first master athlete racing at over 200 pounds in what feels like 200 degree heat. So we asked him back on the show, coming up in the next week or so, I think you are going to love his stories, but also gain from his insights and his lessons. Until next time, stay healthy, stay smart out there, and think of others, support each other, and get the darn vaccine. All right, guys, take care. Thanks so much for listening. This has been the Purple Patch Podcast. If you like what you hear, we'd really appreciate it if you share with your friends and even go the extra mile and head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate and review the show. The Apple Podcast link is in the show notes. Your support and positive reviews go a huge way in increasing our visibility and also the exposure to time-starved people everywhere who want to integrate sport into life and ultimately thrive. Don't forget, you can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Cheers.